Now, if you've got the, uh, the tear-offs, I know a couple of you passed them in earlier and, and didn't, and did you guys already pick those all up? Okay. Man, I, I really appreciate the, the guys who make stuff happen in behind the scenes. They're, they're pretty good. All right. <clears throat> then I won't even worry about tear-offs anymore. I'll let you, you handle that. All right. We are continuing our study of 1 Timothy. We've made it all the way to chapter 5. And uh, we're halfway through chapter 5, but before we move on into that too far, I want to go back just a little bit and take a look at some context. Um, <clears throat> last week, we started off in verse 1. And you, you recall it says, Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father, to the younger men as brothers, to the older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters in all purity. So, in essence, the idea is that we are to be like a family. We've got the, the older men are like fathers, the older women are like mothers. We are to live as family. And so there are different ways in which these interactions function and they work. And we looked at one of those last week. Uh, we looked at the idea of taking care of widows last week. Um, but if, for, for those who came to the men's uh, evening Bible study, we talked a little bit more about some of that, um, and we recognized that with the, the, the idea that James is presenting is that true religion is taking care of widows and orphans, is living out our faith. And so even though what we saw last week with uh, Timothy was a specific situation of widows in a specific time in a, in a certain way. Um, the, the overarching idea is that our religion, that our, our faith in Christ plays out in certain ways. And so this idea of living together as a family, taking care of others, all of that doesn't change just because of this one passage. But we do understand a few things that, that are developed more fully, such as caring for widows, caring for one another in a variety of different ways. Well, this week we're going to continue in chapter 5. We're going to uh, pick it up in verse 17, 17 through the end of chapter 5, which is verse 25. So I'm going to go ahead and read that, um, and then we'll start digging into it. It says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double, double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not receive an accusation against an elder, except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all, so that the rest also may be fearful of sinning. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thus share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep, yourselves free from, keep yourself free from sin. No longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some men are quite evident, going before them to judgment. For others, their sins follow after. Likewise also, deeds that are good are quite evident, and those which are otherwise cannot be concealed. <clears throat> One of the, the challenges that I know I've run into at times is I'll, I'll dig into one section and I'll forget the context. I'll forget the rest of the, the passage and the rest of the, the scripture that goes on around with it. And so... <clears throat> That's why I wanted to do, whoop, I'll get it, I'll get it, maybe. There we go. Last week, we looked at this idea of honor. What is honor? Who remembers? I know it's a pop quiz, didn't give you time to prep and study, but who remembers what it is to honor? Okay, respect is part of it. To value, okay, to place weight on or to recognize the importance and the value of. And sometimes that even goes so far as to uh, be costly, to cost us something. Um, we looked at Ephesians 6, 2. I mentioned it, I referenced it as the idea of honor your father and mother, right? 
So if we as a church are supposed to function as a family and the older men are to be recognized as fathers and the older women are to be recognized as mothers, then that idea conveys straight through, right? And so there's no, there's no change that happens here with honor in this time being different than the honor of last time. And we were told, honor the widows, who are widows indeed. We're told to honor our fathers and our mothers. And here we are about to dig into a passage that starts off with honor elders who uh, rule well. Let, let elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor. And so that idea, that, that placing of weight, that placing of value, that recognition of the importance of, more than just respect, though that's part of it, all of that still conveys and still stays with what we're dealing with here with the older men. <clears throat> it still means respect, but it still means so much more than that. Another word that's used here, uh, that was used last week, is that idea of elder. Now, I don't know about you guys, but personally, when I've heard this before, the, the focus of this phrase, honor the elders, give them double honor, was limited just to the leadership of the church, was just to the pastors. Well, what we've seen already is that older men are to be treated as fathers. They are worthy of honor. They are er worthy of respect. And so what we're getting into this week is going to dig into a specific category, a specific section, but it's still dealing with this idea of older men. It's not limited to a select group of leaders. Instead, it is all older men. It's then going to specify which ones are worthy of double that or an extra amount of that. I don't want to read into the text, but I, I do notice something that's going on here. If the younger men are supposed to treat the older men like fathers, the text doesn't talk about this, but how then should those older men view the younger men? Sons. Just, I mean, makes logical sense that the older men ought to view the younger men as somebody that they should love and develop and help them along right? So we, we youngers ought to be looking up to the older men for wisdom, for guidance, for understanding. And you older men ought to be looking at the younger men as how do I train them up? How do I develop them? How do I help them become more like Christ? If we're functioning together as a family, which is the way that the chapter five starts off, then the older men have a responsibility towards the younger men, and the younger men have a responsibility towards the older men. So don't, don't lose sight of that. We're going we're gonna to dig into this, and we're going to take a look at this idea of what is due to these older men. But don't lose sight of the fact that the older men do have an expectation implied in this. So, verse 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. Let's pause there. You'll notice that there's a... Uh, I, I'm, I'm not going to be able to use this. I'll show if you would... Okay, <clears throat> you'll recognize that there is a, a requirement in this. So the elders, there are older men. They are all to be recognized as worthy of honor if we are honoring our fathers and our mothers to have an idea. However, there is a certain select group who rule well. Those are the ones that are to be considered worthy of double honor. So what is it to rule well? Well, we've already seen this word come up back in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 4. And it's the idea when we're looking for overseers, that there will be certain ones who rule their household well. In that section, it's translated as manage their households. But it's the same idea. And so the younger men are supposed to be looking for where are some of the older men that have led their houses well and that have led in the church well. So if the older men recognize that they have that responsibility of, of treating the youngers as sons, trying to develop them, trying to train them, trying to help them move along, and the younger ones look up to those older ones as like, okay, how am I being moved closer to Christ? How, have they been leading their families well? Have they been leading the church well? If they have done that, then they are to be counted or considered as worthy of double honor. That double, it, it means like mathematically doubling, but it it's also conveys this idea of extra. So honor everybody. 
but extra honor is to be placed on this group, this group of older men who rule well or who lead well, especially. So, so it's not just only treat certain ones with honor and everybody else you can disrespect. I think you've already caught that's not the case. That's not what's going on. It's saying, all right, honor everybody. More than that, if they have ruled well, honor them, especially, or give, give primary focus to these who have worked hard at preaching and at teaching. Now, the, the idea there is not just, um, not just coming up here and proclaiming and being a preacher. Uh, it's translated as preaching, but the, the word there is word. So if they have worked hard in the word. So I, I want you to pause and think just for yourselves, who are some older men that have worked hard, that have labored hard in the word of God and in declaring that to others? in leading others in that. You don't have to answer. I've, I've got a few in mind. Um, I've got some here, and I've got some back in Kansas where I come from, and, and others throughout my life. But I think of those, and that's, that's what this is referring to, is think back, ponder on who are some of those men that have led their families well, that have led the church well, more than that, or specifically that have worked hard in the word in declaring it, in proclaiming it, whether it's Sunday school, whether it's preaching from the pulpit, or maybe it's just your interactions. When you go out and you're helping them work hard and cutting up wood, cutting up firewood, and you, you set the saw down and you pause and you're, you're just talking, shooting the breeze a little bit, if they've worked hard in the word, that's going to come out. And they're going to be talking about, well, who is Jesus? And, and help draw you along. You know, we've got a, a, a church work day coming up. And that's, I, I love those opportunities because we have some of those older men that, that work hard and then we have those break times and we can talk and we can interact. And some, some of that great fellowship and training and discipling happens in those kinds of time frame. So that's, yes, this is talking about pastors. I'm, I'm not trying to deny that, but I'm, I'm hoping that you see that this is talking more than just that. And so we youngers have a responsibility to look around us and see who are the, the older men who are leading well, who are ruling well, both their church and their families. More than that, who are um, teaching and training others well. And we need to recognize that they are worthy of extra, of double honor. Now, I know that we don't have any in here, but it is possible that an older man could sit back and say to themselves, yeah, that's right, Sonny. It's about time you started showing me the honor. Not, none of you guys, right? You, ne you never thought that? Well, notice in this, it, it doesn't say older men go to the younger ones and tell them they better be respected me. No, that, that's not what's going on. What it's saying is that these younger need to step up and recognize them and then give them that honor. And uh, we'll get to verse 18 shortly, but the reason or the basis that Paul does this is based on the scriptures. So, older men who have led well, who have labored in the word, are worthy of double honor. And this, this really does, as we looked at last week, it does include an aspect of actual physically taking care of them. And so, let's... let's step to the side just for a moment and t do our first takeaway or just a, a summary of this. We are to respect all of the men who are older than us. And we've got a wide variety of ages in here. We've got some young men who are back in here and they need to learn how to respect and how to honor. We've got a, a young man here who looks like he's taking notes. Yes, I love it. Um, young men out here who need to be learning those things. But we've, you'll notice from this word, elder, older, it's a comparative. So I'm not sure who the oldest man in here is. I have a guess, but I'm not positive. But everyone else this applies to. Because the oldest one doesn't have anyone older. But everybody else, you've got someone who's older than you that you need to look at them and evaluate. Are they worthy of double and, and additional honor? And if so, how do I respect them? How do I give them that honor? Respect all men that are older than you. If they've done well in their own house and in the church, then you are to add honor upon honor. If they have taught the scriptures and worked hard to help others grow in Christ, then you need to especially honor them 
even to the point that you may take on some physical financial responsibility of caring for them. That's the idea conveyed in honor. We looked at that last week where the church as a whole would take on those widows who are widows indeed, who have no one else who can care for them, who meet certain qualifications, and the church cared for all of their physical financial responsibilities. That's the level of honor that we're talking about. And so when we identify some of these men who have worked hard, who have taught well, who have ruled their family well, we as younger men have a responsibility to honor them and take care of them, even to the point that it may be a financial burden to us. We, we actually have this playing out in this church, which is a, a really cool thing. We have an individual who spent 30 plus, almost 40 years in ministry. And if, if you've ever, I, I'm guessing Jack doesn't want me pointing him out too much. Because this is, this is one of those examples where if he were to stand up and say, hey, you guys need to be honoring me, that'd be wrong. But we as a church have done what we are supposed to. And we recognize that he, he probably could have gone and had a regular career doing other things and made way more money than he did as a pastor. I'm just guessing. I don't know for sure, but I'm, I'm guessing. And we as a church have said, you know what, in order to put this into practice, we need to continue a pastor's retirement. And so if you've looked at the church budget, there is a line item that says pastor's retirement. That's not prepping for the current pastor's retirement. That's continuing to give honor, to give double honor, to take care of the financial responsibilities of that individual. That's a good thing. That's how it ought to be. And so um, I'm, I'm quite pleased and quite proud of the fact that this church is already putting that into play. If you've got questions on how that works in our budget and stuff like that, talk to the leadership. I think Jim can probably explain it really easily. Talk to the leadership. They'll explain how all of that works and where it comes from, all that stuff. But that is a, a practical way in which we see this idea playing out and happening. Now, verse 18 Paul doesn't just say this as a good idea and, and just leave it there. He actually uses scripture to back it up. And so he says, verse 18, For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. He quotes from two different passages. One of them comes from Deuteronomy uh, chapter 25, verse 4. And it's, it's a direct quote. That's exactly what it says there. Now, we're not going to go there and, and dig into that passage, but it's a really neat passage. I would encourage you, if you take notes, write that one down and go read it in context. There's a lot going on there. Um, and if you look up where Paul quotes this again, it's in uh, 1 Corinthians. He references this and explains it some more. It's a really neat passage that he uses. But the point that he's making is that an ox ought to receive physical benefit. He ought to get food for the labor that he does. Makes sense, right? The other one that he quotes from is in Luke chapter 10. Now, I don't know if, if this occurred to you as you were reading through this and, and studying it all, but Luke is in the New Testament, right? Which means Paul is already recognizing that this, this gospel of Luke is part of Scripture when he quotes it, and it's, it's pretty much a direct quote, the laborer is worthy of his wages. So just a little uh, Easter egg, I guess, you know, a little hidden thing right there that's like, oh, wow, Paul is already recognizing that the Gospels that these, that these um, disciples are writing are part of Scripture. And so he quotes it, he references it as the basis for why do we do this? Well, this idea of the laborer is worthy of his wages makes perfect sense. You go out and you do a job, it's reasonable that you get paid for that, right? Well, that's what he's setting up. Those who have worked hard in the scriptures, in preaching the word, in teaching the word, they have put forth labor that may or may not normally have a, a large economic value, but we as followers of Christ need to recognize, okay, by doing that, they are worthy of receiving the benefit of that. And in this context, that's a physical benefit. So, as, as I said, we already, as a church, we already do that to some extent. But how do we as individuals do that even more? I'm sure that you can think through different men that have been a part of your life, helped you become more like Christ. I would encourage you, give them a call. Say, hey, I may never have thanked you for pouring into my life and helping me become more like Christ. But I want to do that because... I recognize that I am to give you honor, double honor, 
because of what you have done. After this, we, we run into a little bit of a gear shift. Paul's going to transition from this idea of a family setting into more of a courtroom type setting. And so don't, don't miss that there is a change that happens here, um, but I don't think that he's trying to give us whiplash in this shift. Some, I don't know if you've ever driven stick, but if you, if you gear shift too soon, it gets kind of... Paul's not trying to do that. He wants to make a smooth transition into this, and it's connected with that, but we're going into a, a legal setting instead of just this family-type setting. As, as we mentioned last week, sometimes things don't always go the way that they ought to. Bad things happen. And unfortunately, even though we can look at these older men and, and respect them, and they can train us, and they can teach us, and they can do really, really great things, sometimes they're not perfect. In fact, always they're not perfect, but sometimes they mess up. How are we supposed to deal with that? What should we do when something like that comes up? Well, that's what Paul's about to deal with. He starts off by saying, do not receive an accusation against an elder, except on the basis of two or three witnesses. So what if we hear something negative about an older man? Well, the first thing is don't accept it. Don't receive that. Don't put value on that unless it's by two or three witnesses. Now, here again is one of those times when Paul is referencing an Old Testament concept that he just assumes Timothy knows. This idea actually comes from Deuteronomy 19, verse 15. Um, if, you, if you go there and look through it and read it in its context, God is setting up how do we deal with judicial issues. Well, let, let's, go ahead and, let's go ahead and take a look. Deuteronomy chapter 19. In Deuteronomy 19, verse 15, it says, A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. It then goes on to talk about a malicious witness. If a malicious witness rises up against a man and accuses him of wrongdoing, then the men who have the dispute shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges, who will be in office in those days, and the judges will investigate thoroughly. And if the witness is a false witness, and he has accused his brother falsely, you shall do to him just as he intended to do to his brother. Thus you shall purge the evil from among yourselves. So Paul is referencing back to this Old Testament concept and idea that was already in place, that they already would have known. All right, one, one witness is not sufficient. You've got to have two or three. And there's a court process. This, this legal process needs to be followed. Now, obviously, in the New Testament, we also recognize Matthew 18, right? Let's go ahead and turn there. In Matthew 18, the, the same question comes up. Well, well, what about if bad things happen? If someone sins against me, how am I supposed to deal with that? <coughs> In Matthew chapter 18, we'll, we'll start in verse 15. It says, If your brother sins, go and reprove him in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. And if he refuse to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuse to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. This, this idea of, of bad things happening, of people not being who they should be, not living up to God's standard, it happens. It's known it's going to occur. And so Paul is reminding Timothy, hey, there are certain principles, there are certain ways in which this is to be handled, and it's not to be just on gossip, just on one person's word. Last week we saw that the, the younger women were warned against gossiping, well, I think that idea continues here in that we don't receive, we don't accept as, as sufficient to convict an older man just one word, just one testimony, just one person. Instead, there needs to be a recognition that there is a due process. In the United States, we have due process of law, right? Same idea is supposed to take place within the church. 
that you are supposed to hear the accusation under multiple witnesses before you, you convict them or do anything with that. So, what if? What if that older man actually did something wrong? And it's known enough that there's two or three witnesses about it. Now, obviously, you saw back in Matthew 18, if, if it's just a, a one-on-one and you have a, an argument and a dispute, what are you supposed to do? Go one-on-one and talk to them, right? That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about something else. So if, if it's just a one-on-one, th- this is not removing those other principles. If, you know, if I have a, an argument with somebody, if, if Dennis didn't shovel my snow the way I want, I don't know, you don't shovel my snow, but I like picking on Dennis. He's just an easy target. Um, if, if I have an issue with him, I definitely don't come up here and start announcing it to everybody. I, I go and talk to him, right? Each of us are supposed to do that, but... In the event that there is a, a larger something, an older man has sinned and, and it gets out and there's two or three. We look at, at the American church around us and there are a lot of pastors who have disqualified themselves from ministry for a lot of different things. How do we deal with that? What are we supposed to do? Well, this makes it clear. If he is continuing sin, verse 20, those who continue in sin or those who are, are actively sinning, not that they have, have repented of it, stopped it, that's years in the past. We're not talking that. We're saying if they are in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all. Okay, we're going to pause there. We'll, we'll finish out that verse in a moment. But rebuke them in the presence of all. Now, obviously, this is one of those that, that pops into my head. Is like, wait a minute. We just saw back in verse 1, do not rebuke. And now it's saying rebuke. What's going on there? Did, it, did anybody pre-study this and figure out the difference? Yeah, some, the ladies' Bible study did. Okay. Um, there is a different word being used here. And so I don't, I'm not positive why it's translated as rebuke in both places, but it's two different words. And so I used the example of spanking last, year, last week. Uh, someone else at men's group uh, referred to chiding or like, you know, being, being sharp with somebody. That was the idea of rebuke in that section. It's, it's don't strike them, don't attack them, don't, you know, that kind of an idea. This one is going back with that legal concept, rebuke them, convict them, recognize them as guilty and declare it that to be the case. And so it is two different types of rebuke, different than what we saw last week. This one is a legal concept of conviction. Convict them, but it says do that in the presence of all. So not just go to them and say, hey, older man, you, you failed. Do that in front of all. Why? Why do, you, why do you think we need to do that? What's it say? What's it say? So that the... Yeah, so that the rest will be fearful of sinning. This is one of those crazy things that comes up when Paul tells for somebody to be disciplined. Almost always, it's not so that they're punished. See, God, God will deal with punishment. God will deal with justice eventually. Paul's desire in this, and we've already seen it back at the end of chapter 1, Paul's desire when he calls for discipline is so that the rest of the followers of Christ are made better are made more like Christ. And so, yes, older men, we are going to be held to a higher standard. And there may be times in which that needs to be made known to everybody and announced. And, and that gets kind of uncomfortable. It gets kind of unpleasant. But the reason isn't to, to put somebody out and just you know, treat them badly or, or anything like that. It's so that everyone else will be made more like Christ. And every time that we see something like this coming up, Paul is using it as a way to train people and to draw them closer to Christ, to get them to be better. So even if a negative thing happens, even if a problem like this occurs, it's, we, we use it as an opportunity to draw closer to Christ. Like I said, we already saw this, Paul do this at the end of chapter 1. Just real quickly, we jump back and we see among, well, um, there are some who have ripped, shipwrecked their faith. Uh, Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered to Satan so that, for the reason, that they may be taught not to blaspheme. Even, Even in that, Paul is trying to draw them back to Christ. 
And so in the event that there's an elder that has, that has failed, that has done what they shouldn't do, Paul is reminding Timothy, use that as an opportunity to draw people closer to Christ, to help them to be more like him so that they won't sin, so that they would be afraid of sin, recognizing what it is. This is a heavy responsibility. And I don't know about you, but personally, I don't like conflict. I don't like having to do that kind of a thing or deal with that. But it is a serious and weighty matter. It, it has an impact, and that's why Paul is emphasizing it. And so, in verse 21, he gives a solemn charge. Like, this, this is, he's not saying, well, if you don't want to, if it's too hard, if it's difficult to confront somebody. I mean, think about it for a moment. Someone that you respect, someone that you look up to, and they've not done what they're supposed to, that's not easy to go to them and, and say, hey, this is wrong, this is bad, you need to fix it. But Paul gives Timothy this encouragement. He says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels, maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. This charge has the weight of a sworn testimony. Uh, Above, we saw that you have to have two to three witnesses in order to convict someone of something. Well, here, Paul is bringing three witnesses um, to give this charge to Timothy, uh, and really by extension to all church leaders. God bears witness to it, Jesus bears witness to it, and the chosen angels. Now, that is an odd phrase, but I don't think that there's anything crazy or unusual going on there. I think we take it at face value. It's exactly what it seems. Angels that God has selected for this purpose of bearing witness of what's going on. So all of this courtroom process is to be carried out. We're not to use bias. Uh, We look at at the media around us, we look at society around us, and we can obviously see that there are all kinds of biases in the world around us. The church is not to be that way. If someone has sinned, if somebody has done this, we are to point it out to them. We are to, to help them get better. If there's somebody that we really, really like, and we don't want to have to go to them and tell them that they were wrong, we can't be biased. We need to stand firm on what is true. Or if there's someone that we really want to, to get after and we just don't care for them, we want to get after them and go, we can't do that either. No partiality, no bias. We're supposed to treat everyone with, with God's standard, not our own standard, with God's intentions that they be drawn back to Christ, not our own intention that may be for personal gain or, or you know, our own little pet peeves or anything like that. You cannot come to a conclusion before the evidence is heard. doesn't matter who the accused is. You must treat them all fairly. Even though it's not fun, even though it can cause a lot of turmoil in a church, church discipline is not an enjoyable process. But it's necessary. It's required at times. And so we have to make sure that we are, are doing what God wants us to do. Now, I do want to point out one more thing that I, I found kind of interesting in this. The only ones that are put up in that public way in this setting are the older men. And I think that that's connected with this idea that they are to be leaders. They are to be rulers. That others are looking up to them and following them. So because they are following them, we want to make sure that we don't follow them into sin. And so we need to be very clear and very open about, hey, if you're going that direction, they are leading you astray and you are following them astray. So don't do that. We don't see that same idea of bringing them up and making a big deal out of it in front of everybody applied to the younger men. Yes, we we still apply those other principles. If we go to them, we correct them, we help them, but it's not nearly so public and in front of everybody for the younger men. Kids kids are going to mess up, right? We correct them, we help them, we train them, and then they move forward. We don't see this on the younger women or even on the older women. Though there are specific instructions given to them, we do treat them um, accurately. We do ex- encourage them, exhort them, potentially even rebuke them in the convict way. But it doesn't have that same principle of in front of everybody. Which means, older men, you bear a, a heavy responsibility. A heavy load is put on you just by virtue of age and gender. Now, you may look at that and be like, well, that's not fair. Oh, well, it's how it is. Step up. Live up to it. 
God has designed you and placed you and given you that ability and that responsibility. Younger men in here are looking to you. And you may say to yourself, well, I don't, I don't want them to look at me. I'm not, even, even those of you, and I've had the opportunity to talk to some of you, and you're newer to the faith, you don't have years and years of experience, you look at, at the likes of Jack and you're like, well, I could never be, that's okay. That's not what it's saying. It's saying if you're an older man, people are looking to you. You can even use those negatives those bad things, those hard times, that history that you've dealt with, if God has redeemed you, he's, he can use that to draw others closer. And you can say, I, I even had, in, when I was a, in the military, I had a guy who sat me down and said, don't do this, because when I was your age, when I was a young NCO, I did that, and it messed up my career, and it gave him all kinds of problems. So don't do it. Well, I, I never did it, and it was a good thing because I learned from his mistake, and I didn't have to make my own. So those of you who, who are like, well, I'm not, I'm not you know, like real godly. I can't do those things. I, I'm just, even that, God can use that to train you, to train others to help the younger men become more like Christ. So do that and recognize that you are in a position in which people will look up to you. We get to verse 22, and this idea of laying hands has a very, very long history. There's a lot of, of stuff in Scripture about that. I would encourage you to dig into that. Um, in the handout, I gave a couple of passages that I think give us an idea of what's going on. I've got them written up here on the, on the slide. Um, dig into these, kind of do a little bit of study on this idea, the history of laying on in hands. I think what's, what's being referred to here is more like a commissioning or an ordination or installing them into a position, an official position within the church. Now, I just got done saying that older men are all being looked up to by virtue of being older and men. But this is referring to a specific group that the church sets aside and puts into positions. Um, in Numbers, we see it used a couple of times referencing some of the, the priests and the Levites and putting them into positions in which they intercede for the people and they act on behalf of God and on behalf of the people. And so they are being put into a position in that way. In Acts, in both of these in Acts, we see individuals being commissioned or set aside by the Holy Spirit and the church to do certain things that God wants them to do. And so I think what's going on here is that Paul is warning Timothy and saying, hey, be very careful about doing that. Because these older men are going to be looked at, looked up to, don't do that hastily. Don't do that in a way that um, exposes you to being part of or responsible for their sins. No, the older men, those elders, those put into those positions are not going to be perfect. They're never going to achieve sinless perfection on this world. But we need to be very careful when we are looking for elders, when we're looking for more deacons, when we are looking for a music leader, a music pastor, when we're doing any of those, the idea is be very, very careful about it so that you don't embrace their sin, so that you don't take that as part of you. Because these individuals, these men are going to represent the church. So when, when I first got here and was starting in on this um, First Timothy, I, I was asked, I fielded a couple of questions about, okay, are we going to have elders now as a, as a church? Are we going to have elders and deacons? Yes, we desire that. We want that. But we are not going to rush into putting elders into a position when we haven't tested them, we haven't gone through this process, we haven't ensured that they align with Scripture. And the, one of the cautionaries is right here. Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thus share responsibility for their sins. Because they become representatives of the church as a whole, we want to be very careful about doing that. Um, it, that verse ends with keep yourself free from sin. So we have to guard against that. We have to guard against allowing sin to come in and, and be some of that leadership, some of that ruling uh, within this church. Verse 23, 
kind of, I, I don't know about you, but when I was reading through this, it seemed kind of odd. It seemed to, to shift gears and to change things. Um, we're not given the full context of what Paul's dealing with Timothy here. But I think that this actually flows right in with the rest of it. So this verse can sometimes be pulled out, out of context and used one way and the rest of it used differently. Don't, don't do that. Don't fall into the trap of, of taking verses out of context. It's easy to do, but we need to be careful about that. I think that it fits perfectly in the line of thought that Paul is giving. It, it appears in some way that Timothy is reluctant to drink wine, and that is, that is alcohol. Um, he's reluctant to do that for some reason. Now, I, I don't know the full context. I don't know the, the story that's going on. I know personally, I grew up in a, in a teetotaling family. Like, there was no alcohol at all whatsoever. And I remember the first time that I used NyQuil. You, you know NyQuil? It, it has like a 10% ABV, something like that. And, and to me, as a teenager, that was like, wait a minute, am I a, allowed to do this? Is this okay? Because it's alcohol. And, and my family would like, no, none. I don't think that Paul is making this major argument and pronunciation about drunkenness, about drinking, okay? So don't, don't go off on that. Uh, the, there are lots of other passages that deal with that. I think right here what he's doing is giving some instructions concerning the proper use of alcohol. And so we're going we're gonna to dig into those just a little bit. Apparently, Timothy had made it a point to only drink water. He wasn't going to going to use wine. We don't know why. We don't know the, the full context. My examples might be connected with that, um, but, but I don't know. But he was in the practice of not using wine. And as a result, his stomach was giving him some troubles. It says, uh, no longer drink wine exclusively, but use, or sorry, no longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. And so, Paul is saying, go ahead and use the medicinal alcohol for the benefits that it will have and not just water. We don't, like I said, we don't know exactly why, but Paul does give him permission and encourages him in the acceptable use of a little wine. You, you will notice it says little. That, that is there intentionally, a small amount, for its medicinal properties. This comes right in the middle of a section that deals with keeping the church pure from sin. And so I think what's going on is that for some reason there's some argument, there's some debate about alcohol. Is, is there the allowance for it to be used at all? And Timothy was trying to keep himself away from that. And so he was only drinking water. And as a result, he was having some medical issues. His stomach was messing up. It wasn't going well. And Paul's saying, hey, in this, in this chain of sin that we're, we're dealing with, this does not become one of those. It's okay to use medicine for its intended purposes in a small, controlled way. Now, today, we don't really use wine. We don't use alcohol for its medicinal properties as much. But we do have other substances that we have to be very careful about that can be used properly and improperly. My mind goes to things like morphine. That's a very dangerous, addictive opioid that we have to be careful about. But if we look at the context and what's going on here, we get the idea that a proper, appropriate, small use of some of these things is not sinful. It's okay as long as it's controlled and it doesn't take control of you. So, so recognize that, that Timothy seems to have been completely avoiding it. And Paul says it's okay to use a little. Timothy is not using lots and then saying, well, maybe I can use just a little bit and be okay with that. So there, there is also the idea of you know, an alcoholic, someone who's struggled with this for years, may need a little bit different cautions than others. But when we deal with uh, this idea of medicine, it does become obvious to us that a little bit in a controlled way is acceptable. Now, when I was in seminary, um, we were having just a, an academic debate and discussion, and we got talking about the legalization of marijuana that was coming up. And, okay, as pastors, how are we going to deal with that? Because that's one of those that has always been this terrible, evil, vile, wicked, stay completely away, and now it's about to become legal. This was before it was legal, but 
hypothetically, we were discussing it. And you know, those hypothetical discussions are really fun. I like those because they're a lot easier. Because a couple of years later, after it was legalized, I had people asking me, well, is this okay? Am I allowed to use this or, or not? Is, is, is this acceptable or not? And, and I ran into some interesting discussions. Um, they were primarily focused on the, the CBD oils and things of that nature. But I think that the principle that we, we draw from this remains true. Um, obviously, if there are legal issues, that's a whole other question and a whole other issue. Legally, we need to obey the governments and the authorities that we have around us. So assuming that these things are legal, I believe that this passage gives us guidance for how to deal with similar questions. Couched in the vast discussion of avoiding the appearance of evil and staying away from sin, Paul gives Timothy comfort to use something that could slide into sin in a limited, controlled way for a specific purpose. And so I think that there is caution that still needs to be. Please please hear me. I'm, I'm trying to be very specific because, again, I grew up in a, in a completely teetotaling family. And so even that idea of, well, medical marijuana, would that be, it's like, no, they wouldn't even consider that. But as we study scripture, as we look at this, I think that there are medicines that come up that we can validly use, but we need to be very careful and very cautious about them. So don't go to either extreme. And, and he kind of continues on, I think verse 24, like I said, this doesn't just come out of context and it's this random discussion of, okay, let's talk about alcohol for a minute and then go back into. I think that this is, it flows straight through. He says in 23, no longer use water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some men are quite evident, going before them to judgment. For others, their sins follow after them. I don't think that Paul is trying to pull this out of context and just deal with this one issue before continuing on. I think that he's trying to set it up to help Timothy understand, you know, a young man, he's trying to be upright, he's trying to do the right thing, he wants to avoid sin, he's trying to identify and deal with sin and make sure that that the church does not have sin happening within it. And in order to do that, he started drinking only water, not even willing to use medicine at all, just drinking water. And Paul's saying, hey, it's okay to use a little bit in a controlled way for the sake of your stomach. If that becomes an issue and sin develops out of that, it becomes quite obvious. It's quite evident. Using, using the example that I had before of medical drugs that are quite addictive, it becomes very obvious if someone's abusing those and using those in an improper way. That becomes obvious. And, unfortunately, there's judgment that comes along with that. But in the same way, verse 25, likewise, also, deeds that are good are quite evident. And those which are otherwise cannot be concealed. Ultimately, we do know that God will reveal all things. One day, he's going he's to have perfect justice. And all of the sins and all of the good things, all of that, he's going to take care of. Um, we do have a responsibility to look at and evaluate and try to understand what is good, what is not. God will make these obvious. Deeds that are good become quite evident. Sins are quite evident. They go before some people. Sometimes they're hidden for a little while um, and they, they come behind, but ultimately they will be revealed as well. So within this, this entire passage that he's dealing with, um, there are people in the church that are doing good things. And that's obvious. And there are people in the church who are not doing as good of things. And that's quite obvious. Sins, that's obvious as well. We, as a body, have a responsibility to recognize those things. And the ones who are doing well, back earlier in chapter 5, the older women who had husbands that passed away, widows, who have lived for the Lord, who have served him, we need to recognize them and honor them and, and even to the point of taking care of their physical needs, that's what we're supposed to do because we've looked at them, we've evaluated it, we see that their good works have done well and we as a church support and encourage them. In this section, there are older men who have lived well, who have done well, who've led their families well, who have led the church well and we need to recognize that they are worthy of honor, of double honor 
particularly or especially if they've labored hard, worked in the word and in declaring that and teaching it and helping others. Unfortunately, there are times when people are in that level, that position, and they fail. And we have to deal with that because sins become evident. And if we as a church allow sin within our leadership, within our older ones, that can destroy the church. And that's not pleasant. That's not good. We need to deal with that in an appropriate way, a scriptural way. But then there are things that come up that are maybe questionable, and we have to be cautious, and we have to understand them. But we recognize, like this example, that some of those, they're, they're okay. Just use it in a little way, being cautious and being careful. That's not sin. That's not a problem. Sins become obvious. Good deeds become obvious. So we, younger men, younger women, ladies, we need to evaluate those things and identify those things, and we need to recognize and honor those who do well particularly, in this case, giving double honor to those older men that have ruled well, especially if they are teaching us, training us, developing us, helping us to become more like Christ. Next week, we're going to continue on in chapter 6, and we're going to pick up a little bit more about these ideas of relationships and how do we interact with riches, with service, servitude, as slaves, how are we supposed to live as a family, as the body of Christ? And I think all of what he's dealing with right here, Paul is trying to help Timothy understand that as the body of Christ, as a church, we are to be a family. We are to be different than the world outside. So how do we live that? How do we show that? And does that ultimately point others closer and closer to Christ? That is the goal. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for your word. There's some challenging things in it. Lord, it is hard sometimes to deal with sin. It's, it's unpleasant. And yet, we need to. We need to do it boldly. We need to do it cautiously and carefully. We need to do it the way that you want us to. But Lord, there's also so many good stories, positive things. Lord, help us to, to honor those who have served you well. Help us to respect them. Help us to care for them. Help us to be the body of Christ, the family that you've designed us to be so that we would draw others to you, so that we would show the world who you are and what you've done, that you have given your son to pay the penalty for our sins. And because we have trusted in you and turned to you, our lives are changed We are different because of that. So Lord, help us to live for you. Help us to love you and to serve you well. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.